That is one of my favorite songs. How about you? Maybe that's because we're thirsty all the time. And uh, that's one of the requisites for being filled, isn't it? That a man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. I don't get involved in the conference as much here. They keep me caged pretty well over at the office. And last summer I participated a couple times and whenever I... Any word that I can put in on the uh, program, and Bob Lewis is here, well, I always request that he sing that song. And uh, appreciate very much your selecting that tonight, Bob. I was... Uh, a little edgy here before the meeting and wandering around a little bit. And as I say, when they let me out of the cage over there and I get to speak once in a while, I get nervous about that. And I looked in our little bookstore to see what we're promoting these days. <laughs> and uh, I'm delighted to see a little book here called Extraordinary Living for Ordinary Men. Not long ago, I went through my own little library and just to make a little notation of the books that I find that I go back to again and again. And this is one of those. Extraordinary Living for Ordinary Men by Episcopal minister now with the Lord named Sam Shoemaker. And it's the best that I have ever come across on some of the how-to of the Christian life and ministry. I think that Zonovan uh, could have done better on the paper here. It looks a little crummy. Uh, a couple of their top men were through here last week. We should, if I'd have known this, we suggested they do a little better. But still, when you, uh, you know, it's kind of the kind of paper I don't like. But I don't want that to put you off. I really think that uh, you'd appreciate getting it. And I don't know if we make any money on this or not. But I do know that it's well worth it. And in fact, uh, you might like it well enough when you get back to your bookstore to buy one with nice, clear, white paper with black print. But I'm very, I'm very happy to recommend that to you if you like something to read on the side this next week. Extraordinary Living for Ordinary Men, Sam Shoemaker. I probably shouldn't have told you about it, really, because some of the outlines I've, had, I've used on occasion I got out of here. <laughs> I will have to admit that as late as 3 o'clock this afternoon I was on the phone to Walt trying to decide whether or not I should take this series this week. Years ago when Doss Trotman was still with us and I was his assistant, um, I thought how nice it would be if someday I were in the saddle and I could make my own decisions as to what I was going to do and when I was going to do it. And it must be uh, pretty good to be the last word and be the boss. Well, I have learned since then, I learned very shortly after that time when the Lord did take him home and I got the job, that I had more bosses than I ever had in my life. And my time is really less than my own and mind you, I have no complaints, no complaints at all. But I'm just stating what is the fact. And um, looking at my do list, I had only one thing I should do, and that was to 
Uh, this not tell you I was even planning on speaking and let uh, someone else take over. I won't tell you about the someone else because you may have preferred that they do. <laughs> uh, but the facts are that uh, I realize that you don't need me this week to speak to you. There are others who can do a very fine job, a better job than I. But the thing that really tipped the scale is this, that I need it. I need it. I really do. So sorry about that. You're in for it because I need it. The Bible says that he that watereth shall be watered also himself. And I need that. So I'm here because I need it. My brother, who's a very fine Christian, he's a rancher in California, he makes me feel like I'm going backwards sometimes in the Christian life, wrote to me about some observations of King David. And you recall when David got into trouble with Bathsheba, it said it was the time of the year that kings went out to war. But uh, David stayed home. And he got into trouble. As my brother pointed out to me, the battle did not need David. He had fine men, good men, that could very well handle the battle. So the battle did not need David, but David needed the battle. He should have been out there in the battle. He needed it. Well, I'm here because I, I know necessary to call this the battle, but because I need it. And there's another reason, too. This last year, since about the first of the year, oh, no, I guess it started last fall. I don't make any difference what it was. But I've been studying the book of James, and I mean, it seemed like I had never seen that book before in my life. And refreshing, stimulating, up-to-date, for the now generation, the social consciousness. So I'd like to bring just a few little devotionals from the book of James. And if I get a little too busy over there, why, Walt will substitute for me one evening. But uh, we'll start tonight anyway in the first chapter of the book of James. Hebrews, James, just before Peter, the letter of James. This letter is called the general epistle of James, or general letter, because it isn't written to any particular group of people in any particular place, but it is written to, as it says here, the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Verse 1. That is, Christian Jews who were scattered around the world. And since it isn't addressed to particular problems in a particular locale, it's called a general epistle. And if you read it or studied it, as I know some of you have, you realize how applicable it is to the day in which we live. It's just, it's just terrific. Now, I think, at least to me, that the theme of the book of James, well, there are several that we could pick, but if you look in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, those verses there, and I'm reading from the RSV, which is the one I'll be using, 
If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this man's religion is vain. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I think a theme all the way through here is pure religion. Pure religion. The real thing. And I think all of us desire deep down inside the real thing. Pure religion. We don't want to play games. We don't want to go through the farm. We want the real thing. And the real thing is there when life hits us full in the face. Pure religion. So James writes about this. Now James, it's generally agreed, was a brother of Jesus, or he might say half-brother to Jesus, since Joseph was not Jesus' father. But both, of course, the sons of Mary. That being the case, we know that uh, James was not a believer, at least until the resurrection. And Paul takes the pains to tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, that the Lord appeared to various people and to James. And it might have been at that time that the Lord had this personal conversation with his brother James after his resurrection that James was converted. Then we read about him later. He became the head of the church in Jerusalem. And in Acts 15, we read about the first church council that was called to resolve a problem, and James was the chairman of that council. And then we're told, not in the Bible, but in church history, that he was martyred in 62 A.D., possibly cast down from the pinnacle of the temple. So we have this book then, written by James, the brother of Jesus, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now the book to me, one way you could say, it's, it's a sermon on Romans 8.28. It's an exposition of how God makes all things work together for good to them that love God. He explains how this can be. And he puts it right down where we belong. Now, uh, I don't know what kind of a mood you're in as you come to this conference and you've driven a day or two. I don't know how things have been going for you lately. But I think a mood does make a big difference, both in the speaker and in the hearer. And I suppose for me, I'm more of in a pensive or thoughtful or sober mood. And uh, maybe you aren't. I don't know, you might be hostile. I don't know what it might be. I remember one time a conference, a fellow came up to me after I'd spoken the first evening. He said, uh, I heard about you a long time ago. This is the first time I've seen you, but I... He said, you know, I've never liked you from the time I first heard about you. <laughs> I've never seen you, I've never heard of you, but I just didn't like you. 
Well, that's interesting. And but Al said, well, the time I came in that gate, you know, I didn't like you. And he hadn't heard me either. Well, I said, don't worry about that. Uh, if you knew me, you'd probably have good reason not to like me. <laughs> but you know, uh, we don't seem to be able to keep the devil out at the gate. He also knows the combination. Uh, 8008. And we are involved in a spiritual warfare. So I don't know what's going on down deep in your soul. But uh, as we look into the book of James, he moves right into life, right into the guts of life. I mean, not the frothy part of life. Life where it's real. And so that's what we have to be in sort of that mood as we move right into this. And so I like to read verses 2 through 12, which to me make a section in this book, where the theme here is trials. Now, maybe you didn't want to start tonight talking about trials, but that's where the book of James begins. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all men generously and without reproaching, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, will receive anything from the Lord. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now, the theme here, as I said, is trials. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials. Verse 12, blessed is the man who endures trial. Now, when it's talking about trials here, it's not necessarily talking about temptations to sin. He's talking about pressures. Pressures. And anywhere you go today, you've got pressures. You walk into a restaurant and look at the, uh, the waitress and see if she has not pr under pressure. Right, don't tell her I said so, but if you saw my daughter came home from Howard Johnson's this evening, she had, she had a rough day. I mean, uh, unless she calms down, they won't have a worker tomorrow. I mean, she's just sick of it. Pressures. We all have pressures. Trials. Difficulties. Adversities of life. And James points out some of these. Take unfairness in life. You look around and there's just unfairness everywhere. The rich and the poor. Then there are critical, irritating, judgmental people that James talks about. These are trial to us. Then we have hopes and high dreams and, 
and then our plans are all set and something came along and they're not there, they're thwarted. And we get frustrated and resentful and it begins to eat on us. And the people or things that have thwarted us and frustrated us bother us. And if we're not careful, we get resentful and even bitter. But trials, this is what he means by trials. Then there's the trial of the seeming silence of God. Where is God? Where I don't get anywhere. There's nothing happens. And then, of course, there's life's sorrows and life's disappointments. Last year was a, kind of a rough year in our family, really. We had five major crises just in the family. And I hasten to say that all of them, before the year was out, came out victoriously. But they were kind of rough. And you learn something from trials. I learned one thing last year. There are things worse than death. I used to think death was about the ultimate, but there are things worse than death. Something else I learned last year, I heard it said when I was a young Christian, and I thought it was a great statement, and it is a great statement. Never doubt in the dark what God showed you in the light. Well, I have a new one. Never doubt in the light what God showed you in the dark. Because I have found, and I'm sure many of you have found, that the deepest, darkest experiences, many times, God has been the most real. And while your heart has been like lead, and it may be nigh on to broken, but still there's a sense of the reality of the mercy and the grace of God like you have never experienced in your life before. Whereas you can be rocking along and things are fine and the light, everything looks bright. And you wonder, I wonder if the Bible's reading the Word of God. More doubts can sometimes come to your mind when things are going great than they were when everything was dark. And I know toward the end of the year we had one of these crises and when we'd been through a number of them, I just knew we just couldn't have another. It just couldn't be. I, it just couldn't be one more. Lord, we've had enough this year. And, uh, but we did. And uh, I'll, I'll admit to you that I, I came apart at the seams. It was about 24 hours that I just was unglued. And I came over here to the office and I was talking to the Rod Sergeant the next day. I said, Rod, if anybody wants to know how the boss has taken this, don't tell him how strong he is. Tell him he came apart. And yet in the, in the center of it all, there was never more certainty or assurance and sense of the mercy and grace of God. Never. And uh, Lucy and I have never been the same since. And we thank God for it. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials. I, I haven't learned that. Frankly, I'm afraid of pain of any kind, including hunger pains. That's why I have trouble. I, I'm, always, I'm, I'm overweight. I'm afraid I'll get hunger pains between mealtime. I don't want to get them to feel hungry. That hurts. 
No pain of any kind. Everything's exaggerated with me when it comes to pain. Terrible. Not the pain, me. But you know, we sometimes look at people being used of God in a great way, and I'll guarantee you something. If you probe a little deeper in any life of anybody being used of God, you'll find that somewhere they have a thorn in the flesh. They've got a secret trial, a secret burden they're carrying. Because you not only walk through this life trying to serve the Lord and do what you can, but you also do it oftentimes with a 40-pound burden on your back. And this is why it's so important that we have reservoirs of emotional and spiritual strength it isn't enough just to squeak by, just to hold out our own when things are going normally. Where is the reserve for one the day when it hits us? But you know what he says here? Count it all joy when you meet various trials. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now this is amplified in Romans 5 verses 1 through 5. Now the very thing you need is endurance, steadfastness. But trials produce the very thing you need. You say, well, I can't stand it because I don't have it. Well, but it helps you have what you need. Just as if you need muscle to lift a weight, you get muscle by lifting weights. Now, uh, so he says, count it all joy. Thank God for them. Well, I uh, don't know just what to say about that. You know, over the third chapter of James, it says, don't many of you seek to be teachers because teachers are going to be judged with greater strictness. And uh, I like to be careful what I say. You know, it's easy to get up and speak and you can make some flowery statements and some broad statements and all, but you're also going to have to face those, you know, because you're going to be judged with greater strictness. Now, it says count it all joy. I can't say that I count it all joy. But I am learning to see that God does work all things together for good to them that love Yeah, I believe that. I still know I don't like pain, even though I know that. But I can see purpose. And so that's what he's saying here. You, how, on what basis can you count it all joy? Can you just hilariously walk around and say, well, it's all joy. Anybody like that doesn't know what I'm talking about. Life hasn't hit him yet. Because joy is a lot deeper than happiness. It's deeper than hilarity. Now, it's a deeper thing than that. And the reason we can count it all joy is that you know something about trials. Well, now, I think one of the, the uh, most difficult things in life are things that are meaningless, right? That you say, why, and there's no answer. That's hard for us to take. It makes it a little easier if there's a why, if there's a meaning. And so here, he gives a meaning. He says, for you know something. And what do you know? That these trials constitute a test of your faith. Now, faith, 
I've been searching around for a definition on faith. I haven't found one yet. I've got two pages of them. And I've had my own, but this is the one I'm using right now. Faith is an inner assurance that counts on the promises of God and seeks to obey his commands. I think when you study the book of James, you've got to put both of those in. It's an inner assurance. Hebrews 11.1 1 says it's an assurance. It's an inner assurance that counts on the promises of God. But you can't put a period there, James says. Faith, it's real faith, will go on and will obey his commands. We see that when we get into the second chapter. Faith. We so tend to attach the word faith to believing a certain set of things. And believing a certain set of things will not see us through the trials of life, I don't think. Really. Let me give you an illustration on this. I'm I, uh, not much of a theologian, but I have the inquiring type mind and certain things that don't fit together bother me and there are problems in the scripture that bother me. I can't put them together. So occasionally in the last 10 years I have started and only gotten part way to put together my own little amateur theology just for me. And I've labeled it what I believe and why. So I have a little notebook where I have some things written down. What I believe and why. And I was working on this for a number of months, but there seemed like there was something missing. That somehow there's a whole segment that I was missing somewhere in this effort to sort of get things sorted out and settled. And then something came along that helped me see what was missing. Something on the book of Job. In fact, it's by Oswald Chambers, the book of Job, called... Uh, Baffled to fight better. I didn't know Oswald Chambers had a book on Job. Baffled to fight better. He pointed out that God and Satan agreed to make Job so a battleground. Not only without Job's consent, but also without his knowledge. He didn't know what was going on back in the background. And as far as the record's concerned, even when God made that explanation to him at the tail end of the book, he still didn't explain what really happened. So here was Job, and he was in a, he was in a terrible fix. He just was, why was I ever born? You know, he was, he was down on the dumps or on the dump or whatever. Then his three friends came along. Now his three friends had answers. They knew what they believed and why. It was very simple. If you're righteous, you prosper. If you are unrighteous, you don't prosper. Job is not prospering, therefore he's an unrighteous man. Cut and dried, simple. They knew what they believed and why. But there were no help to Job. That's not enough. Now Job, on the other hand, I'm not, he wasn't so sure about things. I don't think he knew too well what he believed and why so much. Then I saw it. The missing thing 
was over here. His three friends knew what they believed and why, but Job knew who he believed. He knew God. Now that's the big difference. You've got to do more than just sort of believe in, and live your life on what you believe and why. You have got to live your life in a, a reliance upon him, a person. That's why Paul said, for I know whom I have believed. Now that's faith. Isn't it about Acts 27, 25 where Paul said, Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. So Job had faith. He knew God. And so it was a test of his faith in God. And the thing about it is, these trials sometimes, they severely test what you believe. Because I think sometimes that can get in the way of who you believe. And this thing that James is talking about, and the whole Bible is talking about, is a personal relationship to God. So he says, now you know that these trials test your faith, and the testing of your faith produces something. It isn't just to test your faith, period, as though God is going to tantalize you, put you on tender hooks, or to work you over. He wants to produce something. Now, you never really understand Romans 8.28 unless you put 8.29 with it. God works things all together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And what's that purpose? 8.29, that we should be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might become more like Christ. Here he's saying... The testing of your faith produces something, steadfastness. And that means stable, consistent character. Now, God is interested in character. A character that's like Christ. And Jesus Christ, though he were a son of God, he were a son, yet learned he obedience by what? By the things which he suffered. Now, sometimes I think, I don't know how much I want to be like Christ if that's what it's going to take. Pain still hurts, even though I know this. But it sure helps a lot to know it, doesn't it? That God is working out a purpose. Someone has said, God thinks so much of his son, Jesus, that he wants to populate heaven with people just like him. And he wants to make us more like him. So... The, pur the purpose of the testing of our faith, it produces something. Stable Christian character. Pure coinage. It turns trials into greatness and glory. So therefore, James says, let steadfastness, let this stable, consistent character, that's verse 3, no, verse 4, have its full effect, that you may be perfect, that is, perfected for a purpose, for a use. It should be a vessel that God can use. Secondly, complete. That is entire, well-rounded, balanced. I remember years ago, Lucy and I were 
listening to a young fellow that we know from a Christian college sing. And what a beautiful tenor voice. I mean, it was just sore and mellow, just beautiful. And after the service, I made the remark for Lucy, there's one more thing that will make that fellow really tops, and that is some heartaches. And that'll put that added dimension in that beautiful voice. I think that's what he's talking about here, that you may be complete, well-rounded, balanced. There's a quality, there's a depth, there's a something there that rings in other people's hearts as a result. And he says, lacking nothing, no deficiency. Well now, trials come to everyone. They come to all of us. We can accept them with joy because we know something about them. They need never be wasted. No trial need ever be wasted. And I'd like to point out here that it isn't always that God uses the trial in my life that we, if a trial comes along, say, well, God, what are you trying to teach me? Many times God allows it to teach other people around us. We mustn't walk around saying, oh, I must be something awful, I must be such a terrible sinner, all these trials have come, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? We're to count it all joy, accept them from the Lord, and realize that they're not necessarily because we've sinned, but because he wants to produce character, steadfastness, make us useful, and to use us in the lives of others. Now, when you are really up against it, and it looks like your world has fallen apart. And you want to go to someone for counsel. To whom would you go? To someone who's never suffered? No. You want to go to someone that you feel is a battle-scarred veteran that's been through it, right? That's what you look for. Now these trials then can become God's tools. Now, it's almost as though James say, now that's the theory. But what about the actual situation? Here I'm in the middle of it. You know, I can sit off and I can look at this when I'm not in it, but some of you tonight may be right in the middle of it. See, I don't know which way to turn. I don't know how to act. I don't know what to do. How am I supposed to respond? Well, James is very practical. He says, now, if you don't know how to respond, that is, if you lack wisdom, and wisdom is simply knowing how to apply knowledge to life situations. If you lack wisdom, why just ask God and he'll give it to you. He'll tell you what to do. Now, I don't know how your Christian life goes, but mine seems to go from one daily crisis to another. And I feel a lot of times like Peter, who was walking on the water, and he saw the waves, and he sunk. And he only had time as his tip of his tongue, his chin and his nose out, help me. He couldn't say, oh God, creator of heaven and earth and all these beautiful things, if we come to you today to help keep, you didn't have time for that. He was drowning. Lord, help me. I kind of feel like that. Life is, as I was saying last night to our staff, prayer is not, you know, an act of convenience. It's an act of desperation. Lord, help me. What do I do? 
So he says, if you ask me, I'll give you an idea. That's what I mean, I'll give you an idea what to do. And I know this happens to me all the time. I get all worked up, all upset about a thing, how am I going to do it? It's about the kids, it's about that and about the other, and I'm overreacting. And then I scheme about it, think about it, read books on it, review the outlines I've had on it or heard on it, and go through my... And finally, it's way down at the tail end somewhere, I mind, think, maybe I ought to just pray about it. You know, ask God for an idea. We have not because we ask not. Now, James is very practical. If you're in a trial, just ask God for what to do. Now, he says you want to ask in faith. See, if any of you acts wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all men generously without reproaching, because you ask him, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Now, faith is an inner assurance that counts on God and seeks to obey him. Now, the contrast to asking in faith is to be double-minded. And to be double-minded simply means to be fickle. You can't make up your mind which way you're going to go. Now, when you talk about a guy that's fickle, well, what are you thinking of? Well, he, he's got two girls. He can't, make, he can't make up his mind. He's fickle. Well, how do you get over being fickle? Make a choice. Make a choice. And I think he's simply saying here, decide before you ask, that when God tells you what to do, you're going to do that. You don't just come running up to God and say, now God, would you show me what to do and then I'll decide whether or not I want to do that. I think you decide before you get the answer that you're going to do it. There must be a surrender of the will at the beginning that whatever God says to do, I'm going to do that regardless of what it is. You know, a good place to apply, to, uh, apply this is in raising of children. Man, I mean, it takes something to raise kids today. It really does. Now, we've got six kids, and we, they sort of came in two sets. And uh, the two oldest have children, so we're grandparents, Lucy and me. And we still have two at home, and so they're being raised by grandparents. That could be part of the problem. But I think something else has happened in the last five years, too. We think it is more difficult to raise children today than it was five years ago. There are more pressures, and uh, we could talk about that sometime. But there's something else, too. Sometimes I wish I had never read a magazine article, never read a book on how to raise kids. Boy, if you want to get confused, read what the experts have to say, right? Well, why are we having all this trouble today? Well, we're too permissive. No, we've been too strict. Been to this, been to that, to the other. And you know, we become afraid of doing anything lest it be the wrong thing. We have a book on our shelf. Even if I never read it, the title is helpful to me, has been for a long time. And I just go by and I see the title. It's in it, and the title is Parents on the Run. <laughs> and that's a great help. Parents should not be on the run. And sometimes, Lucy and I will admit, we've been on the run. We've been afraid to do something. Now, Lord, you made little kids. Especially, did you, you made teenage kids too, didn't you? <laughs> well, you know how they can be handled. Lord, give us some idea of how to handle these teenage kids. 
And you know God has some ideas on that because he made them. And our little experience is the closer you stick to what God said to do, the better off you are. In spite of all the prophets of doom of what's going to happen, if you follow what Proverbs has to say about raising kids. Now that's simply a little illustration, I think, of what it means to decide when you come to God for wisdom, what to do in a situation, you say before you ask him and before the answer comes, Lord, whatever it is, I will do that. I'm going to follow God's way. Regardless, oh, you know, but the neighbors, you know, so-and-so's parents, well, she's raising them, we're raising you. Uh, what God has to say. Now, when it comes to wisdom, you see, in these trials, he says, now ask, ask in faith, don't be double-minded about it. Then he gives an illustration here of wisdom, verses 9 through 11. Now, this has to do, then, with the rich and the poor. This is wisdom illustrated. Wisdom asked for, now wisdom illustrated. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now I think what he's saying here that in this situation, when you look at the, the rich and the poor, and of course that was quite a thing that they saw constantly, wisdom will do what? It will clarify your perspective. One of the big problems we have in life that our perspective gets all fouled up, doesn't it? We have to get back off and take a look at things. And so he says now, in that case, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation that he, the poor man, the lowly one, is valuable. And let the rich man in his humiliation that he has come to see that the things in which he has, has trusted are sand. They're useless. And he's had to transfer his trust elsewhere and both will pass away that rich man that's so powerful like the grass he's going to dry up and blow away he'll be gone before you know it why all the stress and everything that he's put himself through to get there where a coronary will take him off about like that you know I always wonder why Jesus said the meek shall inherit the earth the meek shall inherit the earth. I think I know why. Because they're the ones that survive. The meek person is a person kind of relaxed. They're still around the others who work themselves to death. I says, get your perspective clear. Look, life is very short. Life is very short. And one day it'll be all over for them. Get your perspective clear. A few years ago, I was being taken to task rather severely by a certain person, by letters, somewhat well-known, all calling on me to resign and how underhanded and thoughtless and selfish and so on that I was. And it began to trouble me. 
and it troubled me a great deal. It ate on me, in fact. And uh, this thing got in my mind bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, I've had a little uh, formula that I followed that has helped me, but it didn't help me. And that formula, though, was if somebody had criticized me, if I'd stop and think about it soberly for a moment, I'd think, well, if they only knew the half, they'd have a lot more to say than they've got to say. So I'm really lucky. I'm well off. But that didn't help in this case. It got bigger and bigger, and I, it just began to plague me night and day. And finally, one day, in desperation, and a few of the fellows that worked with me were together in my office, and I told them what was the trouble, and I said to Jim Downing, Jim, would you pray for me? And we stopped right there, and they all prayed as Jim Downing led in prayer. And when we finished, it was just like the air had been let out of a balloon. The thing just settled right back down into perspective. It didn't eliminate it, but it got it back to perspective. And I think that's what he's talking about here. A lot of times, things in life get way, way out of proportion. We lose sight of eternity's values. And wisdom, an answer to prayer, will be perspective. Now then, so he winds this section up and says, Okay, blessed is the man who endures trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now, a right response then is to stand the test. Don't buckle. Don't buckle. See how sleepy you are. What time? When did I start? Do you, do you remember? Honey, when did I start? Do you know? Uh, it makes a little difference here. I, uh, you've been going a long way. I've got, well, I'll give you this little illustration anyway. I should save it maybe for another night, but it comes in here well. About standing the test and don't buckle. We have uh, our daughter and her husband moved in with us for six months. They're both going to school and kind of poor and they need to save some money on rent. And uh, they have a dog. So we talked about that a little bit, that this dog might become a source of irritation. So they move in and so on. A few months later, what happens? The other part of the family that's home think they need a dog. So I'm not only soft-hearted, I'm soft-headed. <laughs> and on a Saturday, they got me to go out and look at some pups, and so we bought a little pup. We thought it was a cockapoo, part cocker, part poodle. We have no idea now that it's grown up no more what it was. <laughs> so that cost us 25 bucks. So we took it to the vet that afternoon and got it shots and so on. That was another 22.50. That's 47 dollars and 50 cents on Saturday. So that evening, we put it out in the utility room and closed the door, and I come there the next morning, my door is Those. And if we can work it out, we're going to have a little get-together of uh, new widows, just that we know within a mile radius of our house. And uh, why? Because this is what the Holy Spirit through James says that we're to do. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. How? If you love one another. Love. Now, James 2 is all about love. Now, let's take a quick look at it. Uh, I, uh, I divide James into three passages, three sections. One to seven, 
8 to 13 and 14 to 26. Now in James 1 to 7, he's simply saying that he's warning against partiality, snobbery, or playing favorites. My brethren, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man with gold rings and in fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, have a seat here, please. Why you say to the poor man, stand there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme that honorable name by which you are called? And in so doing, we just turn around some of the scriptures, such as Psalm 15, 4, which says, In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. And sometimes we tend to reverse it. To honor a reprobate because he is somebody or has some money and despise those who fear the Lord. Now let's say, well, that's not me. I'm one of the fairest persons you've ever seen. We'll talk about that in a little bit more. Because uh, if you are, I want to get your secret, because I'm not. Then he goes on and says, now, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, snobbery, playing favorites, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery said also do not kill. An interesting thing to me, the reverse of that today, the people that are clamoring for peace but think nothing of sleeping with anybody that they happen to want to that evening. Uh, both are wrong, according to James. If you do not commit adultery but do kill, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, yet mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, he's saying partiality or snobbery is not love. Since love fulfills God's law, a failure to love is to break God's law. Because Romans 13 says that the whole law is summed up in this, that you should love your neighbor as yourself because love does no evil to his neighbor. Then in verses 14 to 26, he points out that genuine faith, real faith, the real thing, results in works of love. And there are four illustrations here, two negative and two positive. The first negative is the armchair philanthropist. Verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has not works? Can his faith save him? That is that kind of faith. Is that a saving faith, really? Because if a brother or a sister is ill-clad and in lack of daily food, and one of you says to them, 
go in peace, be warm, filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what does it profit? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. The armchair philanthropist, that kind of faith, is dead. Because faith always does something. You read the Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of the heroes of faith, and they did something. By faith Abraham obeyed and he went out. So and so offered. You notice the verbs. They all did something. Then he uses another illustration here of the demons in verse, verse 19. You believe that God is one? And you know what the Jews, and I won't take time for this because I want to get to the center part here in a little bit. Deuteronomy 6.4, they all know that, that there's one God and so on. He says, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now their kind of faith does not result in peace. It results in shuddering. And the kind of faith that saves is a faith that results in peace. Right? Therefore, being justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. Then, so there are two illustrations of dead faith. The armchair philanthropist, who's got all these high and mighty ideas, but he doesn't do anything about it, and the demons. And then he has two illustrations of living faith, Abraham and Rahab, beginning with verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar? You would see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by works. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body is apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Now we could get involved in the doctrinal relationship of James to Romans, and I don't think it's too difficult to explain. But after it's all explained, we'll miss the heart of the whole thing, so I'm going to skip the explanation. <laughs> And I want to point out this. Isn't it something that James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to demonstrate living faith, chose Abraham and Rahab, a Jew and a Gentile, a man, a woman, the head of a nation, a harlot, to illustrate real, genuine living faith. The whole gamut. Now Abraham's act of faith was toward God. Because the illustration has to do with the offering of Isaac. And so Abraham held nothing back from God. Rahab's faith was toward man. Her act of faith was to help the messengers, the spies that Moses had sent out, uh, was it or was it Joshua? Joshua. And she helped the needy. Okay. That's James 2.
It wasn't bad, was it? That took me an hour to go through half, two hours to go through James 1. Uh, but don't get your hopes up high. I'm not finished yet. In fact, I just got started. I want to share something with you that God has been really using in my own heart. And that's the center of this whole chapter is verse 8. Look at it. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, what is the royal law? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. Now what is love? I wonder if anyone has a good working definition of love. Now I have looked all over for them. And I've come up with one. It's sort of my own. It's a little composite of others. And it's very meaningful to me and I hope I can make it meaningful to you. And this is the heart of what I want to leave with you tonight. Love. Love is an unselfish concern. It's an unselfish concern that freely accepts another, freely accepts another, and seeks his good. Now I want to use that as a working definition just for a few comments for the rest of my time this evening, and it shouldn't be too long. Those of you who are here or have been around the navigators for a while know that we have certain basic beliefs that underlie everything we do. One of these is that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Another one is that the Bible is what it claims to be, the Word of God, in other words, the authority of the Scripture. The other has to do with the importance of every individual. That every human being, every life, God intended to be significant and is significant. And that every individual, the importance of every individual, that one seems to want to conk out here. Do you like purple or blue or green? <laughs> purple. I like blue. The importance of the individual. I'm just, I'm writing here, you can't see this. Maybe I can skip that. The importance of that individual. You can't read it? It makes me feel like I'm using visual aid, so bear with me. Now, we believe that every human being is important. Everyone, be they seven or seventy. I remember I was in England with the Billy Graham team and teaching counseling classes, and a lady walked up to me. I wasn't prepared to give this illustration, so I'm looking for my verse while I tell it. Yeah. And she said, Mr. Sani, could I see you a little bit? I said, fine. So we sat down in the pew. 
She said, I am 84 years old. Do you think that God can use me? And it flashed into my mind about Anna in the temple. And so I read to her about this woman. It says, And as she was a widow till she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. God was using her night and day. And what struck me so was a few weeks before I was in Scotland and after a counseling class, a young boy came up, about 13 or 14, that was a spastic and he couldn't hold his head still and he was, Hey, Mr. Sandy, do you think that God can use me? And I put my arm around his shoulder and I said, Son, I know that God can use you. I believe that every individual is important to God, is significant. First of all, just by virtue of what he is. A being made in the image of God. Who am I? I'm a being made in the image of God. And I'm significant and important just because you exist. But also important by virtue of what a person can become. Now, let's just tie that in with love. Love is an unselfish concern that freely accepts a person just by virtue of what he is. A human being made in the image of God, long hair, barefooted, straight, tie, bowler hat, whatever. Love freely accepts people because of what they are made in the image of God. I, I, I feel a sermon coming on there, but I'll, I'll drop that just for now. <laughs> and also, love is an unselfish concern that freely accepts another because of what he is and seeks his good for what he can become. Now, Love, I said, is an unselfish concern. I debated that for a while. In fact, a long time I used the word active concern. But I think unselfish concern is probably right because, and I doubt if any of us, therefore, ever love perfectly. But we care and we are concerned. Now, I said here that love freely accepts another. Now, this verse 8 is right in the middle there of James 2. Take a look at it again. And in the first seven verses, what is he saying? Don't just freely accept the rich man and sort of reject or put down dishonor the poor man. Neither should we do it the other way around. We should accept the poor man. We should accept the rich man. Love will accept both. Freely accept them. I think I shared with some of you another experience that was very uh, forcibly impressed upon me. First time I ever went to England was with the Billy Graham team. And my friend Charlie Riggs and I had gotten there and got into London late at night and went up to our hotel room and we had separate rooms. And I sat on the bed and didn't want to unpack. We were going to be there five or six months and a little blue and it was a typical London night, you know, foggy and drippy. I thought it was typical anyway. 
So I called up Charlie Riggs down in his room. I said, Charlie, what are you doing? He says, nothing. <laughs> I said, neither am I. Let's go for a walk. So we started out and went down the streets and everything was quiet. And it, we, I, we didn't know. He we was sort of afraid somebody might jump out of any doorway. And so we were looking for a place to just get a bite to eat and couldn't find a place anywhere. And finally, we saw on the second floor of a building a little sign on the window that said, Cafe. So we located the door and got up there, and there were oh, a few people in there. And among them was an American, obviously an American, uh, particularly in those days, the dress was quite a bit of contrast, and he was drunk and noisy. And he recognized us immediately, and said, well, hello there! And I was kind of embarrassed, you know, we quiet down, first time in England, here was some American noisy guy, and I'd heard about him, and we wanted to win the English and all the rest, and I, it bothered me. So, well, what are you fellas doing here? And my friend Charlie Riggs would talk to him, but I just kind of, you know, uh, wished he'd shut up. <laughs> and what did you do but come over by our table? He sits down by Charlie Riggs across from me, talking away, and what are you fellas doing here? And Charlie said to him, after a while, he said, well, we're here with the Billy Graham team. Oh, Billy Graham, huh? And he looked at me and he said, you won't make a missionary. <laughs> I said, what do you mean by that? And this is what he did. He went. Uh, he wasn't too drunk to read me. That's right. He was right. I learned something from a drunk, noisy American that night. That it showed all over. I did not really accept that man. I didn't want to be associated with him, related to him in any way. And I don't think that's love. And a lot of times I'm afraid to freely accept people because in freely accepting them then I think that I am also thereby condoning something about them that I may greatly dislike. So therefore, love is an unselfish concern that freely accepts another but never stops there. Jesus freely accepted people, didn't he? But he didn't stop there. He always sought their good. I'll make another admission to you. Hippies repulse me. I'm, I'm a straight. I, I'm just plain straight. Yeah, I love hippies. I guess. Sometimes, sometimes I don't. Man, I'm telling you, when I do my little jog or walk along the Mesa Road, my, I've got more muscle in my right arm than my left giving the peace sign back. The hippies are always going off. You know, they, they drive back and forth with peace. And, <laughs> this summer, as we did last summer, we have a training program up in Boulder, and its objective is to reach hippies for Christ. And last summer, at the end of the summer, they had a little Bible conference for a few days. They asked me to come up and speak. And my wife and I went up there and to meet these kids. And boy, I tell you, it broke my heart. It broke my heart. And uh, years ago, when I first started my Christian life and ministry in Los Angeles, I'd go down once a week to Skid Row 
in L.A. And there it was old men and it was alcohol. Here it's young kids and drugs. And they're children. They're, I mean, they're little children. A lot of people have a wrong idea about hippies. They think that the radicals and the hippies are the same, which they're not. Hippies are dropped out. They're not, they're not fighting anything. And they're like little children, and you have to think of them as 12-year-olds, really. My wife and I walked into to the meeting, and there's one of the girls sitting out there, and she's petting a cat, a little kitten. So you, uh, you stop and talk to her about it, and, you know, and, and make a little conversation, and yeah, she's trying to get it to sleep so she can go into the meeting. And yet that same girl may have been, uh, may have had a miscarriage or been married a couple times. I know when we left there and uh, I thought about it and it affects me the same way since. You know, I cried half the way home. And I think Governor Reagan of California might be seen to be right sometimes that we're going to lose a whole generation. But I know something. We've got thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them and you'll never reach them unless you love them. And to love them means to freely accept. But I don't want to freely accept them because they smell, they look bad, they, I don't want to condone them. But, and so down inside I'm, I'm kind of mixed up. But love will accept them. And you know why that this culture, I'm sure you know this, is so appealing particularly to the artistic, sensitive young person today? Because it's an accepting culture without demands. And part of the problem is that it does freely accept, but it doesn't seek their good. Well, maybe I think so. But to be like Jesus, I'll freely accept people. Human beings made in the image of God. And really, how are you going to do anything with them? How are you going to help people? Unless you can learn to accept them. Now, frankly, I've admitted it to you, and you don't have to admit it out loud to me, but it's not always easy, is it? Or some scoundrel, or somebody that's done you in in one way or another, or somebody that's broken up a family. I mean, there's some real tests. But you see, love doesn't stop there. That's where it begins, though. We are accepted in the Beloved while we were yet sinners. I think sometimes we need to stop and remember how great of sinners we were and how in what shape we were in when God accepted us, freely accepted us. But then seeks his good. And so the last half of the chapter is talking about the last half of my definition, seeking people's good by meeting their needs. And people's needs, according to Luke 2.52, can be physical, they can be intellectual, Spiritual, social. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's physically, intellectually, spiritually, and socially. Now, Rahab was commended here for all history for us to read about because she put herself out to meet the physical needs of some messengers. Now that she risked her life to do it. 
Well, let's see. I got some theories here, but I better leave off the theories. Yeah. You know, Doss Trotman was a great example to me. More than one time I've known, or I found out, that he emptied his wallet to help somebody. He came back from a trip to the mission field with his suitcase empty. He'd given his clothes away, and not because he had that many clothes at home either. He was the greatest guy to instantly help somebody who was in need. I remember way back once, this was way before the Supreme Court decision and all the rest, two black fellows, we call them Negroes then, black now, but they were, their car was stalled right in the middle of Richmond, Virginia. In the deep south. We were down there with the Graham Crusade. I mean, he didn't, it didn't make any difference. They had a rattle trap of a car, too. It made no difference to him who it was. They had somebody, and he says, come on. So we rushed out there in the street, and us two white boys were pushing those two black boys down the street. I mean, it was just instant. I think that's, an, uh, that's just a, a little illustration now of, of love that meets people's needs. But it seems to me that some of us are so self-centered we're still thinking about ourselves that we are insensitive to the needs of others. I think of Bob Foster, who runs Lost Valley Ranch. He's on the board of directors and the navigators. He'll call my house. I remember years ago, he'd call my house and one of my kids would answer and he wouldn't say, Ah, is your dad there? He'd say, Who's this? Well, this is Gene. Well, hi, Gene. This is Bob Foster. How's school? He had 30 seconds for her before he asked for dad. No, I haven't got time for that. No, I'm not that important. Are you that important? That we don't have time for people? Be they seven, or 17, or 70? I sometimes think as navigators. You know, we work mainly with kids, young people, between the ages of 18 and 25. It's almost like we are, how old are you? 26? Out of my, they're not in my department. See, I'm a Christian before I'm a navigator. And as a Christian, I have a responsibility to God to meet the needs of people as I come across them and contact them within my life. That's love. That's James says, that is pure religion and undefiled. That's the real thing. In fact, he's saying there, that's real worship. We think that real worship is conducting of a service on Sunday morning. He says real worship is faith that works through love, that freely accepts people and looks for a way of meeting their needs. And it gets right down there, doesn't it? James is a book for today, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. You know, let me just touch on an item here. I'll, I'll, I'll quit, really. It says here, you love your neighbor as yourself. Apply this definition to yourself for a moment. Is this legitimate for you to have an unselfish concern that freely accepts yourself and seeks your own good? I say it does. One problem that many people have, they have never accepted themselves for the way God made them. A lot of people are mad at God. I'm too short, I'm too tall, I'm too fat, I'm too skinny, I have no talents, I can't do this, I can't do that, or I'm this way, or I'm that way. And we've got a mad on with God. 
or where somehow that we have never accepted ourselves as we are. You know, that's worth a message in itself. Have you ever said, thank you, God, for my being like I am? There were a few years in there that I thought, well, I'll never make it in this job because I don't have the, um, the emotional reserves. And I'm kind of a... Uh, in fact, I just ordered a book the other day, The Tough-Minded Manager, where I can toughen up a little bit. Too soft. I'm soft-headed and soft-hearted. Well, I said to one Christian man who came through here, a fine man of God, I telling him about this. I said, you know, I, I don't know if I've got it. I said, I stand up and talk about some things and I blubber. Well, he said, you know, Jeremiah was the weak called the weeping prophet. And he had a very tough message to deliver. God does not entrust a hard message to hard hearts. You ought to thank God for the way you are. And God must think that the way you are is what he wants where you are or he wouldn't have put you there. Can you freely accept yourself? And don't say you don't have any gifts because Peter says, as each has a gift. You wish your gift was, was somebody else's gift? If you want my wife to come apart, it seems, trap her into speaking a week from now. I mean, the thought of speaking petrifies her. She does a good job when she does it, which is rarely. But that's not her gift, really. I, I'll admit that. I, I'll do the speaking in our house. But uh, <laughs> that is outside of our house, I do. <laughs> but she has a gift. And it's my job to help her develop her gift. And not be like Marina Downing or Marion Foster or somebody or somebody else, but to be her. And you've got to be you. That's, that's, a, that's good sound stuff. Freely accept yourself. I don't know if you need that or not. I have a feeling some do. And then look out for yourself. See to it that you take care of yourself physically. While you're here trying to see how you can better organize your life spiritually, that's right. So love others as you love yourself. What about loving God? Well, you'd say, does that apply to God? Well, it's an unselfish concern that freely accepts God, and I can sure put it there because a lot of people won't take God well, just like he is. Well, if I were God, I'd do this. So why doesn't God do that? Well, how can you seek his good? And here I am through. God apparently wants something. Now, the Bible says he doesn't have need of things, but he apparently wants something. He wants fellowship. He wants dedication. He wanted something from Abraham. And in order to get that something, what did he ask him to do? Now, Abraham had waited for years for an answer to prayer, an answer to a promise of God, and what was that? A son. And after he got this son, and he was grown up to a pretty good-sized boy, one day God said, Abraham, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And listen to what he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. It's almost like God is rubbing it in. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. 
Now, was God trying to be tough on Abraham? No. He loved him. This was his promise. And you know the story how they went up together and God provided a sacrifice and they came down together. And can't you just imagine that Abraham and Isaac had a renewed relationship like they never had before? You see, faith withheld nothing from God. Faith worked through love. Abraham loved God. Abraham was called a friend of God. Well, I don't know how it strikes you, but this, this matter of love, that really, that gets right down there. And as they say, that's where it's at. Let's look at James 2.8 once more. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Love is an unselfish concern that freely accepts another and seeks his good. Try that on precise. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for speaking to us through the word. We're grateful for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.